Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 21 and pick up where Paul was reading for us earlier, the first 11 verses of this chapter. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, actually Zechariah. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And please underline the next four words, and a very great multitude spread their garments on the ground. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who were before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. This day uh, that we're reading here is one of the most important days in world history. This day would have been April 6th, 32 A.D. Jesus has a little less than a week before he would be crucified on the feast of Passover. This day was foretold by the prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9. And it was also foretold in Psalm 118. This is a very special day. Uh, This morning I would like to look at the days leading up to this day and the reason for the great multitude that I mentioned in verse 8, a very great multitude, um, also mentioned in verse 11, uh, the reason uh, this great multitude has formed. And so we're going to backtrack a little bit. We'll kind of work our way up to the the text that we just read here this morning. So for starters, uh, let's turn to the Gospel of John. And I'm going to have you turn to... John chapter 10, Jesus would have been making his way eventually up to the feast of Passover if you were Jewish and um, age of 13 and older, um, you were required by Jewish law to offend, uh, to offend, <laughs> to attend three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkot. And the feast of Passover is coming So wherever you were in Jerusalem, or if you're a Jew anywhere from around the world, you would have been um, on your way there. If you look at verse 40 of chapter 10, it says, And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Um, This is recently, um, Bethbara is what it's called. It's close to Jordan, uh, Jericho. So you get to Jericho first, and then you go another couple miles, and you run into the Jordan River, 
And this is where John the Baptist would have been, been baptizing. Then as you look at chapter 11, um, he's down by Jericho, but in the first oh, six verses here, he's going to make his way up to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. By the way, I've mentioned, uh, entitled the morning's message, Servers, Worshippers, and Witnesses. So let's read the six verses here in John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now we're going to go and look at that in just a bit. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, him who you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Um, evidently, the Lord had a special um, bond with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And I believe he would often stay with them to the point where they're calling him, your friend Lazarus is sick. And they were sending a message from Bethage. Now, Bethage and Bethany would have been um, on the Mount of Olives. And it's all downhill from Jerusalem, which is, I think, about 1,300 feet above sea level, to the lowest place on the planet, which is the Dead Sea. Jericho is the lowest city on planet Earth. So it would have been all uphill when this message was sent. And we find in verse 6, So when Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where it was. I was curious the time, how long, it's going to take him a couple days to get there. I found out yesterday that the average person can walk um, and he walks at a speed of 2 point to 3 point something miles per hour. And I was trying to calculate just how many miles it was and I got frustrated so I gave it up. And I'm just going to round it off to two days. <laughs> because when he gets there, Lazarus is already going to be dead for four days. But he purposely knows. The Lord knows all things. Good place for an amen. There's nothing that he doesn't know about any one of us. And after receiving this news, it tells us in verse 6, he purposely stayed there for two more days. He arrives, and I'm not going to go through all these verses. Look down at verse 17. When he finally does arrive, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. And I'm trying to put myself in Mary and Martha's shoes knowing that um, if he would have just showed up, this wouldn't have happened. And we're introduced to the, the personality characteristics of these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And without exception, Martha is always moving about, serving. And without exception, when you read about Mary, she's always at the Lord's feet, without exception. And we'll see that this morning. So in verse 20, uh, it said many of the Jews had joined, 19 I mean, had joined the woman around Martha and Mary just to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, 
but Martha was sitting in the house. So we have Martha moving, and again, Mary sitting. Martha comes out and says, Lord, you know, if you would have been here, this would not have happened. And the Lord tells her, your brother's going to rise again. And she goes, yeah, I know. At the resurrection, we read about the resurrection in Psalm 96 this morning. The Lord is going to come at the great white throne judgment and judge the world. That's different than the judgment seat of Christ. You and I, if you've accepted Christ and as your Lord and Savior, you will never stand before the great white throne judgment where the books are open and you'll be judged according to your works. Um, the judgment seat of Christ, sometimes called the Bema seat judgment, is a judgment for the war- rewards or the things that you've done in your life for the Lord. It has nothing to do with your sin or your salvation, but only in, in those things that you've done for the Lord. So we find in verse 32, if you move down a little bit, um, I, I, I sort of detected attitude in Mary's comments here, even sarcasm, and actually a little accusation. Lord, if it would have been here, this would not have happened. And he was your friend. And now verse 32, when Mary came uh, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Again, when you read about Mary, she'll always end up at his feet, in one way or another, saying to him the same thing that, that Martha said, Lord, if, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. They were totally 100% persuaded that Jesus was the Messiah. And now, with a little less than a week to, to live, he's making his way to um, um, uh, the, the Feast of the Passover. Then we read... Uh, in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he says, well, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 says, Jesus wept. We find here that Jesus groans. And with the groaning, I have to ask the question, Then the weeping, why the groaning? And what's going on here? And I really don't know, to be honest with you. But I know it's one or two things for sure. Number one, in verse 35, he sees Mary weeping. And, you know, the Bible says we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who are rejoicing. So it could fall under that category. However, um, in verse 38, Jesus groans again. And he groans within himself, and he came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone laid against it. Now, I lean towards the fact that when Jesus wept and he groaned, it wasn't um, because of, uh, I think it was nothing more than he had told them that your brother's going to rise again. They were thinking future tense. They had no idea it was going to be the next hour. And we read down in verse 39, take away the stone. Well, this guy's been in the tomb for four days. Martha says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Stinketh is the old King James. Just He smelled after four days. And then the reason I feel that 
that he's challenging their faith is because in verse 40 he said, Did not I say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And they took the stone away, and the Lord lifts up his eyes and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I thank you that you always hear me. And boy, I wish Cecily DeMills would have put this one together at this movie. Because he goes up to the stone, and I'm, I'm thinking with a voice of an authority that only God could have. He says, Lazarus, and um, come forth. And I truly believe if he would have said, come forth, everybody who was ever dead would have come forth. <laughs> he had to be specific. He said, Lazarus. Now remember all the people that are gathered there. And all of a sudden... Here comes a man staggering out, and Lazarus came forth, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Everybody saw it. Everybody knew. This, this man for sure was dead. We watched him being wrapped. Um, we knew that Jesus Uh, was delayed by two days. And because of of this, it tells us in the next couple verses that the religious leaders in Jerusalem have a problem because all the world now is going after Jesus. Imagine the talk around Jerusalem. Can you imagine how quickly the word spread, even to the religious leaders, so that they had to consider what to do, and the only thing that they could come up with is they have to get, get rid of this prophet named Jesus and get rid of him right away. And so we find here, um, verse 53, from that day they plotted to put him to death. So what Jesus does between the raising of Lazarus from the dead until they know that a search party is out for him, verse 54 tells us that he goes to a place called Ephraim. Not the one in Door County. This is in Israel, okay? And there's no Wilsons at this one, I'll guarantee you. And, um, and there he remained with his disciples. All right, now just follow the order of events. Now from Ephraim, for first of all, he's down by Jericho, or John's baptism. He comes back up to Bethage. He goes to Ephraim, but now in chapter 12... Verse 1, six days before the Passover. All right, this would have been what we call Palm Sunday. Matthew 21, the triumphal entry. And we'll end the study with looking back at that again. But I'm making my way up to verse 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been, past tense, dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made him a supper. Martha served. Imagine that. Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. What is he? Oh, he's a living witness. He was once dead, and he's alive, and everybody knows it. And he's at the table. Where's Mary? Well, Mary here, we find that Mary took a pound of very costly oil, of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, 
and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And, um, of course, Judas gets upset about that. He was a thief, and he was really concerned about what he could have sold that for. Um, And I'm going to come back to this. In verses 9 through 11, it tells us, because of this event, that a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only. They didn't come just to see the Lord. But they also want to see a guy who had been dead, who's alive again, Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest took counsel and said, not only do you have to get rid of Jesus, but we also have to kill Lazarus. He's causing such a stir that we might lose our position and our place. Keep your finger here and turn to Luke chapter 10, because we're going to come right back to that. And I'd like you to look at verses 38 through 42. You know, the more you study the scriptures, there's certain patterns that begin to unfold. And there's um, an order, especially when we talk about Bible prophecy. You'll see that this morning. But there's these four or five verses here about Mary's character and Martha's character, picking it up in Luke 10, verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me serve alone? I can just see any sister doing that to another older sister. Therefore, Lord, you tell her to come and help me. But Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. Why do I always think Marsha, Marsha, whenever I read that? Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. She was listening, and oh, what I wouldn't give to be able to sit one-on-one, listening to the Lord and hearing and not being distracted with the cares of life, but right from the Lord himself, one-on-one. And Mary is taking it all in. She's hanging on every word. The Lord gently rebukes Martha and commends Mary because I think the most important thing in life is getting to know this book above everything else. Good place for an amen? Amen. You may not think so. But heaven and earth is going to pass away, but not this book. This will last forever. And we'll be learning from it uh, into into eternity and the ages to come. I don't think there's anything on Wall Street that can top it. I don't think there's any commodity in the world. The precious of jewels is more valuable than this book. And the, the Lord gave the parable, if you're a wise man and read this book and do what it says, you'll build your house on a solid rock. Ah, you'll get hit with some storms. Ah, you'll go through some hills and valleys, some bumps in the road. But the Lord says, when it's all said and done, you'll still be standing. But he says, the person who hears this word and doesn't take it to heart, he's a fool. He's like a man who built his house on sand. They go through the same storms of life because there's no foundation It says, that house fell and great was its fall. What stability of soundness of mind 
Why? Because this is a book of prophecy. It tells us what has happened. In this chapter, I'll say this twice this morning. We have 11 verses. There's going to be three Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. Only God can tell the future and hit it with 100% accuracy. Another good place for an amen. That's what we have this morning. And so here we have, um, we have Martha serving. Now, Martha gets a bad rap most of the time. What I'm about to say next, I want to put in the most positive of terms. Because the service primarily is about servers, worshipers, and witnesses. I think if you're going to be a healthy church, you must have all three. Let's look at servers first. And I want you to know that the gift of serving, uh, you can turn if you want to or I'll just read it to you. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, Corinthians 14 is a chapter about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, it says, God has appointed these in the church first, apostles, then prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then the gifts of healing, and right after that, the gifts of helps. So a helper in the Christian church is actually a gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at chapter 14, verse 12, the purpose and the reason for it being given is if you desire spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to have it. All the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church is so that somebody else will benefit other than yourself. There's one exception. That's the gift of tongues. Verse 4 of chapter 14 says the gift of tongues is for self-edification. But all the other gifts, and what we're looking at right now is just one of them. A server, a Martha, a healthy church will have a bunch of people that have the gift of serving and the gift of helps. Here at Calvary Chapel, we have servers. We have those who clean the building. We have yard crew. You don't know it, but we have a security team walking the grounds right now, looking out because of the crazy times we live in. We have our security team. We have children's ministry helpers and teachers. We have office helpers. We have people that come in every Friday morning and stuff the bulletin that you have, you're holding on to right now. They've been doing it for years. We have helpers at our two annual conferences. We have a gal sitting right over there, I won't embarrass her by name, that prepares food for the worship team and people on staff. Uh, She prepares it fresh every uh, Sunday morning. We have ushers, we have greeters, we have a sound room team in that building back there. Um, We have... um, Jerry, in in the CDs, you can pick up this message immediately after it's done this morning. He's been doing it for years. We have bookstore servers. We have coffee servers. We have people that collect ties and offerings and will count it. And they've been doing this year in and year out. We have people that arrive here like 5 o'clock in the morning just to open up the building and get things noticed. They're Martha's, but let me be careful here. They are Martha's in the best and truest sense of the word. And all this stuff is going on behind the scenes just to make a Sunday morning service doable along with Wednesday night, not to mention the upkeep of uh, an old building that used to be a disco. (laughs) Doesn't look like a disco anymore, does it? It's been born again. (laughs) 
I could tell stories. So servers, but then we have, uh, go back to John chapter 12, we have, as a church, the necessity to express our gratitude by worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. In John 12, verse 3, we find Mary, and she takes this very costly ointment, and she wipes uh, it on the Lord, and then she wipes his feet with her hair. Uh, Why did Mary do this? Why was she putting this ointment on him? Well, the Lord tells us after Judas rebukes her, he said in verse 7, let her alone, she keeps this for the day of my burial. In other words, Mary was aware that Jesus was about to die. Now here's the irony of what I just said. Five times, we've been going through this on Wednesday night, five times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this to the disciples. I'm quoting from Matthew 20. Now Jesus going up to Jerusalem, because everywhere is up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. Deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked. Then they're going to crucify him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Five times, he says it openly to the disciples. And immediately after hearing this from the Lord, what do they do? They begin to argue amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest when they get to Jerusalem. Force for the trees. They didn't hear it. If you look at verse 16 of chapter 12, it said his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him that they had done. But they were listening, but they weren't hearing. But there was one woman who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. And evidently in that, she heard what the disciples did not. And my question here is, why did Mary do this? My answer to you is, because she was listening. She was listening when the Lord said, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to die. Well, if that's the case, Lord, I'm going to prepare you for burial. And she took it a step farther, and she realized the reason Jesus came, he always told the purpose. John the Baptist said it first of all, there's the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sins of the world. Passover, I believe she understood that the Passover lamb was actually going to be Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Mary understood this death was personal for her. And so what does she do? She worships. What a beautiful act. Mary understood what Jesus was about to do. Mary wiping Jesus' feet with her hair was a loving act of worship because she understood that Jesus was dying for her. And it was her own personal expression, using her own hair, um, to worship the Lord in this way because of what he's done to her. If the greatest commandment is to love God, I don't think he could muster that up. Unless you realize, like the Bible says, we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, no exceptions. Amen? Not one of us, we're all the same. And that um, there's only one man who ever made sin the issue and said that he came to die for the sins of the world. 
but he doesn't force his hand. He's a perfect gentleman, and he leaves that ball in your court. You can accept it. You can reject it. And um, we find here that Mary understood it, and it moved her to the point of worship and her love for the Lord. In Hebrews 13.15, it says, Therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, in giving thanks to his name. We are actually exhorted, like we read in Psalm 96 this morning, here to worship the Lord. Here at Calvary Chapel, we're blessed with several worship teams. Um, They go the extra mile all the time. They work full-time jobs. Then they come in and practice on a Friday, and they've been doing this for years and years and years. And we have a couple different worship teams that lead us in worship to the Lord. Praise the Lord occurs 512 times in 95 verses. We'll start with one, and we should get through by two or three. No, I only picked out a couple. But 512 times we're exhorted to praise the Lord in 95 different verses. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you people. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. Indeed, it is. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. People who have problems with musical instruments and drums and so forth in a worship service, they need to read Psalm 150 where it says, Praise the Lord on drums and cymbals and long clanging instruments. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Go ahead. Praise the Lord. I remember the first time, um, like being a hippie the first time in the 60s saying far out. I remember being a Christian and Christians were saying things like, praise the Lord. And I thought, what's this all about? You know, it's Christianese to me. Or um, um, terminology like uh, uh, trials and stuff like that. As a new believer, I'm trying to, you know, grab, grab on to this stuff. What does it mean? And I'm waiting for my chance, the first time, to say, praise the Lord. But I didn't want it to be a, a phony, fake thing. I wanted it to be the real deal. And I found myself, the Lord, doing something, and it was natural, spontaneous. Praise the Lord. And I finally got it. The lights went on. That's why it's in the scriptures so many times. Worship is a vital part of, of what we uh, do here at Calvary. And it's essential. When it has something to do with going through a hard week or whatever, and you come in with all this baggage, and all of a sudden the worship team starts singing, and it's like the old song, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And you go, this is what it's all about, worshiping the Lord. Why do you think you were created? To worship him. Last Wednesday night, we talked about the 100 million angels, that that's all they do. The four living creatures around the throne, day and night, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. When you're in the presence of God, the natural response is to give him the praise that is to his name. 
So we have servers. We have the place and the importance of worship. But that brings us to the last one, being a witness for Jesus Christ. And here we have Lazarus. Let's, as Lazarus was, again, um, in verse 10 of chapter 12, the chief priest took counsel that they must also put Lazarus to death. Why? He's a living witness of the power of Jesus Christ. He had been dead for four days. And the restructuring of the molecules of the atoms and to bring everything back to normal instantaneously, where he says, Lazarus, come on out. And he came out, and now he's sitting at the, at the table, having a meal, a threat to the religious establishment. He's got to die. Because at account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed. He is a witness. He is a witnesser just by being alive. <laughs> well, it's a picture of you and I. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. We call it being born again. If you turn to the book of Ephesians, let's move our way towards back the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, picking it up in verse 11, it tells us that when Jesus did ascend into heaven, he sent back the Holy Spirit with gifts. We mentioned one of them, the gift of helps. And in verse 11, he says he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And so here are some of the gifts. Now the purpose of them is for the equipping of the saints for the work of of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. So with the idea of being equipped, you have to have this tucked away in your heart so when the appropriate time comes, the Lord has, uh, he told the disciples, he says, go on, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive power. He was talking about Pentecost because he knew that they couldn't do this in himself. I remember kicking around before I was a Christian, and I said, let's be honest here. I can't do that. I'm not good. I can't be good, so let's not play any games here. And I remember people explaining to me, no, what happens is God actually comes and lives inside of you. And when that happens, he gives you gifts. And the one thing, I made a deal with the Lord. Okay, I'm going I'm to give my life to you but none of this witnessing stuff and certainly no public speaking. (laughs) I was scared to death of public speaking. That was simply off the charts and radar. I would have said, you're you're crazy. I will never, ever do that. That was a deal I made with the Lord. That didn't last too long. (laughs) So, but it said after he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit back with gifts to do what? to equip the church to be a witness so they could fulfill the Great Commission. We're told in Matthew 28, Go therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them. There's a lot of preaching going on today, but very little teaching, equipping. Equipping the saints, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded to you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the world. Gang, this isn't the great suggestion. This is the great commission. And he's commissioned you and I to be salt and light for a while in this world. 
Each one of us here have our own sphere of influence with a certain group of people. And the idea of coming here is to get refreshed, encouraged, exhorted, so that you can go out on your week and feel better equipped and more, more strong, uh, stronger in your faith to be a witness for the Lord. Acts 1 verse 8, he said, you'll receive power that after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and uttermost parts of the world. Do you know that when the Lord does something for you, you're supposed to tell somebody else? Psalm 105, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Something that the Lord has done in your life, share it. Acts 2.42, our structure, our style of ministry at Calvary Chapel Appleton is really structured around Acts 2.42. And that is, they continued steadfastly in Apostles' Doctrine, that would be Bible study, fellowship, breaking of bread, we did that this morning in communion, and prayer. We have men's and women's prayers every Saturday morning, ever since the day we, we started many years ago. But primarily on Sunday, it's worship, and then sitting at Jesus' feet, feeding on his word, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, Genesis to Revelation. Let's go back to Matthew 21 and tie this all together. Matthew 21, verse 8. Remember I said I wanted to do a little background And I wanted to give a reason, verse 8, it says, a very great multitude gathered on what we call Palm Sunday. Why was the multitude there? Well, hopefully we have a better understanding. After the raising of Lazarus from the dead, then we have this unbelievably huge group of people that Jesus allows himself to be worshipped publicly. He would never do this before. He would heal somebody and say, no, don't tell anybody. And um, he didn't want himself to be known, he said, for his hour had not yet come. Well, his hour had come. More importantly, his day had come. In these 11 verses, we have three Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. The first one is in verse 4. And here's a head twister in verse 4, because what, when we read this here, notice that the Lord said that we actually have donkeys and two instead of one, and Luke's account it only gives one. But we read here, here's a prophecy. Go get this donkey so that it can be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. Tell the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, humbly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went, found it just as he said. He says, by the way, if, if the owner says, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? To say, the Lord has need of him. So they said, the Lord has need of him. That was the end of the discussion. The miracle here is, it tells us that this donkey had never been ridden on. Anybody who raises horses or donkeys know you've got to break them before you can ride them. Not this one. This was a miracle on top of it but it was being fulfilled right here on this day from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Now, the next 
a prophecy fulfilled here is in Psalm 118. And I'm going to have you go back. We read here, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But it doesn't give us, it doesn't give us the whole prophecy in, in uh, 118. It gives us a little more clarity. And here, there are different kinds of psalms. There are worship psalms. There's meditation psalms. And then we have what we call messianic psalms. This is a messianic psalm. It could only have its fulfillment on a certain day. And that day would be when the Messiah would come and the people would acknowledge that he is the Messiah. Let's pick it up in verse 22 of Psalm 118. The stones which the builders rejected. Who were the builders? Scribes and the Pharisees. They wanted to kill him. But he's become the chief cornerstone. They wanted him dead, but everybody's worshiping him. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24. Read it carefully. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Not an ordinary day. A very unique, special day in world history. This is April 632 AD. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I now send now prosperity. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is what the people are shouting as Jesus is riding this donkey. And the scribes and the Pharisees pick up and they say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This can only be sung by and to the Messiah. And Jesus said, I can't do that. Because if I do that, the very stones are going to cry out. And I always like to say, don't you wish, just for a second. Everybody was quiet. Singing rocks, that'd be, that'd be a singing thing. <laughs> and he goes on to explain to them that this day was foretold, and this is a second prophecy that's being fulfilled in Matthew 21. For the last one, you need to turn to uh, Daniel chapter 9. Usually when I do this study, um, it's more than one Bible study because there's so much here. But in Daniel 9... Daniel was like Mary. She studied the word of, he studied the word of God just like Mary listened to the word of God. And in verse 1, it says he was studying Jeremiah, the prophet, that there would be 70 years that they would be in captivity. Well, when we get to Daniel 9, the 70 years is up. In other words, it's time to go home. So Daniel begins to pray. Lord, we're in Babylon now. Seventy years are up. I was reading the prophets. Time to go home. And in the middle of his prayer, the angel Gabriel comes to him in verse 20 and begins to speak to Daniel. Imagine, there's the, the two mightiest angels are Michael and Gabriel. And Gabriel is more in the, into delivering messages and Michael is more the warrior. But we find here, all he wanted to know is when we get to go back to Jerusalem. But instead, 
um, in verse 24, we call this Daniel's 70th week. He tells Daniel, look, I'm going to deal with the, your people, the city of Jerusalem, the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem, for a 490-year period of time. And in verse 25, he says, and after 483 of those years, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be the 69 weeks or literally 173,880 days. He says, after the command to restore and rebuild, then you start counting. Well, if you're taking notes, you need to write down Nehemiah chapter 2. There's a king named Artaxerxes, who's the king of Persia. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. He has to test the wine so it's not poisoned. He comes in, he's sad, and the king picks up on it, on the body language. He says, what's the problem, Nehemiah? You're never sad. He said, I just got word from Jerusalem. The people are going back, but not many. See delays and waste. He says, what do you want? He says, I want money. I want orders with your handwritten instruction to give a command to rebuild the streets and walls of Jerusalem. And you can mark the starting point. If it's 173, 180 days or 483 years, you have to have a beginning point. So Sir Robert Anderson, head of Scotland Yard, did all the research and be a Berean, check it out for yourself. If it's true, it's one of the most mind-boggling predictions, prophecies in the Bible. Good place for an amen. What are the chances that after that command was given, that 173,880 days brings you to April 632 AD, and what's going on? Oh, here's Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives on a donkey. What are the people doing? Oh, they're quoting Psalm 118 that can only be sung about the Messiah. And the probability factors of all three of that happening in history with one man riding a donkey while you have this large multitude. We're quoting Psalm 118. He allows himself to be worshipped and says, matter of fact, if they don't, the rocks will. Somebody's going to worship me today. And we have all this happening. And so what we see is overwhelming. If you just use common sense, gang, overwhelming evidence of Let's go back and we'll close with one verse of one thing. Go back to our text, Matthew chapter 21, that these three prophecies would, hap- would happen with such detail and accuracy, it can only mean one thing. There's only one man in human history that this ever happened to. And we read in 10 and 11, we'll close with this. And when he had come to Jerusalem... And the city was moved, saying, who is this? The multitude said, well, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Amen? Amen. We'll stand and close with prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we make our way through the scriptures on this holiday weekend, Lord, we're so grateful for the authority of scripture, its inerrancy, and that um, we can hang our hat on it and our hope in it. Lord, I pray this morning for, for anyone who's never seen enough evidence to trust you as your Lord and Savior.
Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would bring the revelation that we all need salvation. And um, we all get to say yes or no. We can harden our heart, try to explain it away, or we can bow our heart and be like Mary and sit at your feet and worship you. And thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, we're grateful. We love you. And we um, pray that as we go and travel or have uh, lunch with family and friends that you bless the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.